The California Technology Council's new CTC Benefits Trust combines groups of emerging technology companies to offer large company benefits to small businesses. This approach delivers employee benefit programs with better choices and at a lower cost. What's included? Medical, dental, and vision options are available with additional employer and employee online resources to support simplified enrollment and administration. To learn more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash join. That's californiatechnology.org forward slash join. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. While much of the focus of drug developers looking to act on the genetic mechanisms underlying diseases have focused on the genes that code for proteins, Cirrus Pharmaceuticals is looking to the regulatory regions of the genome. This is the non-coding part of the genome that controls the expression of genes, turning them on or off, or modulating their level of activity. We spoke to Eric Olson, Chief Scientific Officer of Cirrus Pharmaceuticals, about the company's discovery platform its pursuit of cancer and monogenic diseases, and the lead programs in its pipeline. Eric, thanks for joining us. Uh, yeah, happy to, uh, uh, happy to uh, be here. We're going to talk about Cirrus Pharmaceuticals, its approach to drug development, and its pipeline. We did speak to your CEO, Nancy Simonian, in early 2018, so... We're going to cover some new territory here. Cirrus is developing therapies that target the regulatory portion of the genome to turn gene expression on or off or to modulate it. Perhaps we can start there. What makes up the regulatory portion of the genome? Yeah, so the, um, you know, the genome is divided up into um, actual genes. There are about 20,000 genes uh, in the 3 billion base pairs of the, of the genome. Um, and that's really a very, very small percentage of kind of the, the um, landscape of the, of the genome. And the rest of it, for, for many years, people have been trying to figure out what is the rest of this DNA and what is it doing. At one time, it was even called junk DNA uh, a couple of decades ago. Uh, but what, what, what we now know is that a large part of that, uh, large part of that genome um, is really uh, uh, there to direct the transcriptional machinery or the machinery that drives the expression of genes in a very cell type uh, and context specific manner. Um, it's really those parts of the genome that direct all that transcriptional machinery to the right genes to get expressed at the right time in the right cell. How well understood is the role of this part of the genome and the role it plays both in health and disease? Yeah, well, first of all, the recognition um, that it plays a very important role, you know, that's, that's, that's very clear. We know that um, many of the most important elements that drive the expression of, of, of the genes are, are in these regions of the genome. But 
you actually can't identify just by sequencing uh, the DNA. I mean, the other methods, and within the last 10 years, um, have seen a revolution in the kinds of methods that we can use to um, dissect and understand what these regions are, what genes they're regulating, and uh, the role they play. Now, in terms of uh, disease, um, there's also a, a, a lot of work over the, over the last several years by geneticists looking at what we call GWAS, or uh, kind of gene variants uh, in the genome that are associated with certain diseases um, uh, or predictive of, of worse outcomes in, in diseases. Well, what's turned out over the last several years is many of these variants are exactly in these regions, these regulatory regions of the genome. Um, so uh, every month there's new data making these links between uh, genetic variants um, and um, uh, uh, and uh, the, the genes uh, they control and how they play a role in, in disease. And in fact, in, in monogenic diseases, diseases like sickle cell disease, for example, um, we know that the, the, uh, one of the therapeutic opportunities there that we may have a chance to talk about um, is to use the understanding of that regulatory region around the globin locus uh, to turn on a, a, a new globin gene. Well, before we talk about any specific indications, how do you go about targeting this portion of the genome to interfere with a process underlying a, a given disease? Yeah, so first of all, you have to understand, obviously, what those regions are, what are they doing, and what parts of the machinery are they um, influencing um, to control the expression of, of, of that gene. So um, you kind of got to get the parts list of um, what are all the parts uh, that are interacting with that region of the genome to drive that biology. Um, and then you have to base, basically go into the lab um, and start um, manipulating those parts, see which ones really play a major role and might offer it an opportunity um, to, to be a, a target for a, a specific drug. Well, what, take a step back and talk about how you go about target discovery and preclinical development. Do you think you're doing anything fundamentally different than other companies to identify the candidates you're pursuing? Yeah, there's kind of three, we have kind of three parts to, to what, we're, what we're doing. First is kind of understanding of what this um, transcriptional machinery is in, in a various cell type associated with specific disease and kind of its interaction with the regulatory regions around those genes. Second is kind of deep biology um, uh, of understanding that, that disease and where, where is the intersection of the pathology and what the patient is actually experiencing and what's happening in the patient's cells um, with regard to, to that. And then the third is uh, uh, drug discovery capabilities um, to actually find the drugs that, um, uh, uh, that can influence that biology. So we start with defining the problem at the gene control level making sure that um, where we speculate to intervene, we really convince ourselves that that's going to have an, a, an effect on the disease, and then we go about uh, building the drug discovery uh, platform needed for that particular drug. But we always start with, uh, with uh, patient, uh, patient tissue, patient cells, and really try and characterize um, this regulatory landscape 
directly in the in the patient tissues instead of model systems. You know, for many years we did drug discovery, um, uh, taking uh, findings in models, whether they be fruit flies or mice or rats, um, and doing deep characterization there, and then um, looking for drugs in those systems, and then in essence going out and, and hoping we find patients that look like the model. Um, we do. We kind of start just the other way around. We say what's really happening in the patient cells in the disease state, and then we actually build our models based on that understanding. You're pursuing both cancer and monogenic diseases. You alluded to sickle cell a moment ago. The approach makes sense to me in the case of something like sickle cell disease, where there's a single faulty gene underlying a pathogenic process. Cancer, though, tends to be a lot more complex than the aberrant activity of a single gene. What's the case for using this approach in cancer? Yeah, one of the things that, that we know um, happens for, for a, a normal cell to become a cancer cell, it really has to, we call it rewire its genome. It really has to change um, uh, several aspects of the transcriptional program in order to become uh, a tumor cell. Um, so one way to attack that is, um, for example, um, uh, uh, find a drug that would, what we call pleiotropically, uh, affect uh, the, the ability of that cancer to kind of run that transcription or that gene control program. Um, and we can talk about our, uh, our two, two of our programs uh, where we're applying that. But the basic concept is with a single drug, you're going to be influencing the expression of many genes. Um, and, in fact, uh, uh, that will uh, lead to the, the death of the cancer cell. Is there a risk, though, of having an off-target effect in, in broadly acting that way? Yeah, so what we, that, that's, in fact, that's one of the reasons we look at um, specifically in starting with tumor cells from patients and compare them to normal cells and ask, what is the transcriptional mis uh, misregulation and where can we intervene um, where we can disrupt that uh, misregulation in the tumor cell with minimal disruption in the normal cell? And it's really only understanding both states, the tumor state and the normal state, um, can we um, uh, find drugs that will uh, preferentially kill the tumor cell. And the tumor cell will reveal um, uh, uh, several what we call dependencies or transcriptional dependencies. For example, many, uh, many oncogenes, or genes that are really important for the cancer, have to be uh, produced at a very high level continuously, um, where that's not the case in a, in a normal cell. Um, and if you lower the, or shut down the expression of one of those really critical oncogenes, um, the cells can't tolerate that and, and go into a process called apoptosis. Um, whereas normal cells, um, uh, they're not as sensitive to that because they don't have this heavy dependency for constant high-level expression uh, of those genes. We're seeing a growing movement toward combination therapies to treat cancer. Is there a case to make for using what you're developing in combination with other therapeutics? Are you looking at these as single agents? Yeah, abs absolutely. And, and it, it, you know, it's not a, it is a growing movement to use combinations and um, uh, it makes, it makes uh, perfect uh, biological sense. Um, 
since about, usually by the time we treat people with cancer, uh, that cancer could, could be very heterogeneous, uh, heterogeneous in terms of the types of cells that are in there. They're not, not every cell is exactly the same as the other cell. Um, so one rationale for combination is um, uh, different uh, drugs will, will kill different uh, subsets of those tumor cells. Um, sometimes we can build on, on, for example, in some cancers, they've deleted a, a, a specific uh, gene, um, and they're reliant on the other copy, on the other chromosome. So they only have a single copy. So they're already crippled in, in terms of the level of, of expression of, of that gene, um, where the normal cell still has both copies. So if you, if you um, knock down that one um, in the cancer cell, Again, the cancer cell can't tolerate that because they only have one copy. Um, and based on whatever pathway that is in, uh, we can look to other other drugs in that pathway for synergistic effects. Um, uh, and we're in our, our current trial, we're, we're exploring combinations um, with both our RAR alpha agonist uh, for SY1425 and our CDK7 inhibitor 1365. We have arms in the trial where we are treating in combination um, uh, with agents. When we had Nancy on the show, we discussed your lead candidate, 1425, which is being developed for AML. I'd like to focus on your other clinical candidate, SY1365, but can you give us a, a quick reminder of what 1425 is and, and where you're at in development there? Yeah, yeah so um, SY1425 is a is a molecule that um, uh, acts on a, a transcriptional regulator, a transcriptional regulator protein called RAR alpha. Um, and in fact, in, these, in some, in this, in a subset of patients with AML, this, this RAR alpha uh, is misregulated, and it in turn then misregulates many other genes. So here's an example where we can modulate the activity of RAR alpha and have a downstream effect on the expression of many genes. Um, so that's the, basically what, what the molecule is and, 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 the, and the pathway. So we're currently, we have uh, in a phase two trial with SY1425 in combination with a molecule called azacitidine um, in uh, what we call biomarker-selected AML patients. These, so these are patients where through our uh, platform and understanding the, this regulatory region of the genome, we saw that this RAR uh, alpha pathway was was misregulated. Um, so in that collection of patients, uh, we're looking at in both relapse refractory uh, AML patients, as well as patients uh, who are newly diagnosed AML, uh, but are unfit for standard chemotherapy. So both arms are enrolling both here in the U.S. Uh, and in Europe, um, and we're looking forward to um, uh, uh, to that data. SY1365 is a CDK7 inhibitor. You're pursuing this both for ovarian and breast cancer. It's not a new target of interest within the industry, but it's a, been a difficult one. What's the interest in this target, and what's been the challenge in getting drugs to work on it? Yeah, the interest in the target really comes from some work. Um, first, first kind of arose from some work done at um, at Dana-Farber uh, Cancer Research Center and at, at Harvard and, and with one of our co-founders um, working with various um, cancer researchers 
um, had discovered that many cancers have this transcriptional dependency where they need to express these high levels of these uh, uh, oncogenes, um, and that um, CDK7 inhibition was a really potent way to shut down the expression of, of, of these genes. Um, so that came through some work through, uh, through academic uh, labs. Um, and uh, so we decided to make a, a molecule. Now, the challenge there was um, there's a whole family of proteins called CDKs. And uh, to get a very selective CDK7 inhibitor with a small molecule was, uh, was not trivial because the, the site on the protein where you want the molecule to fit um, is very close, closely related to the other CDKs. So um, the challenge was, was making a selective molecule um, that uh, fits CDK7. And then, of course, had all the rest of the drug-like properties that you need to take a take a drug into the clinic. And how does the drug actually work? So that's why 1365 um, works by binding into a into a pocket of the CDK7 protein, um, but it also does this uh, has this mechanism which we call covalent um, inhibition, where the molecule um, uh, basically permanently attaches itself uh, to CDK7 and in, in essence kind of cripples uh, CD, the CDK7 protein. It keeps it from uh, from working. Now CDK7, the other interest in CDK7 was um, I told you about the transcriptional, what we call the transcriptional dependencies or misregulation. Well it turns out tumor cells also are misregulated in in what this process called the cell cycle. Um, Normal, normally, a cell, there's various checkpoints for a cell as it's going as it, through its life where it's making a decision. Should it replicate its DNA and divide or not? Well, cancers are, cancer cells have kind of blown through that decision process and keep replicating. Um, and it turns out that uh, CDK7 is an important protein um, in driving cells through the cell cycle. Um, so we're actually, by inhibiting CDK7, we're really uh, attacking two, two types of biology that the cancer cell has misregulated and, and needs to survive, cell cycle and transcription. You've got a second CDK7 inhibitor in preclinical development. How does this differ from 1365? Yeah, so 1365 uh, was the first CDK7 uh, inhibitor uh, in the clinic. And it, um, it's an IV molecule. As I said, it's a, uh, uh, it permanently attaches itself uh, to CDK7. Um, while we were discovering and developing that, um, we were working on uh, a second molecule that would be oral. Um, we know there's going to be many, um, uh, many other cancers uh, that, where this mechanism could be uh, a valuable mechanism but where an IV therapy might not be the ideal route for a, for a patient. Um, so we set out to also make an oral molecule. Um, and uh, so SY5609 is our second CDK7 inhibitor that we're preparing to take into the clinic um, uh, early next year. Um, and it's highly selective, potent um, molecule that um, uh, we're excited about. And do you know what indications you expect to pursue? Yeah, we're currently um, 
we're currently uh, testing the molecule in, in several different um, di several different types of, of cancers, um, and uh, throughout this year, that that data will really uh, really um, be the data that will uh, help us decide where we're going to take that. Of course, we're learning a lot about SY1365 and ovarian cancer and breast cancer, so we'll certainly be building on that. Um, but again, given that it's an oral molecule, uh, kind of the, the breadth of the cancers uh, we could go into uh, is probably a little larger. Eric Olson, Chief Scientific Officer of Ciro's Pharmaceuticals. Eric, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.